Hi, fancy folks. Welcome to another episode of Luxi, a podcast that explores the intersection of science and luxury. We opened our season on the science of fashion with a look at fashion trends and a dive into the science behind fabric. This week, we're looking into one particular fabric, silk. And I've been looking forward to this episode for a while, ever since we decided to do fashion for this season, because I spent some time in Cambodia. And while I was there, I had the privilege of seeing some silk production. And it was very interesting to see and even more interesting to learn more about it. So we're going to start with some background. Approximately 90,000 metric tons of silk were produced in 2022 which puts it at a billion-dollar industry. However, this is less than 0.2% of the global textile market. And as we get into silk production, you'll probably see why it makes up such a small amount. The top producers of silk are China and India. This makes sense as silk production is thought to have originated in China during the Neolithic period, about 12,000 years ago. The earliest evidence of such production are silk proteins found in soil from tombs in China dating back to 8,500 years ago. In 2007, archaeologists found woven and dyed silk fabrics in a tomb in Jiangxi province dating back to approximately 2,500 years ago. So think about that. 2,500 years ago, people were weaving and dyeing silk fabric. It's amazing. Silk production also has a long history in India, with evidence of it found at sites dating between 2450 and 2000 BCE. The process of silk production spread globally with the advent of the Silk Road, or as some scholars call it, the Silk Roots, because it wasn't just one road, which was active from the 2nd century BCE to the mid-15th century and brought silk to places such as Greece, Rome, and Egypt. And silk quickly became a very coveted commodity. The trade route was ended when the Ottoman Empire severed a trade between East and West around 1453. There were other trade routes for other commodities, such as the maritime spice trade with India and Arabia and the Jade Road, southern routes from Xinjiang, and I'm sorry about the pronunciation, to eastern China, used as far back as 5000 BCE and still used today. So how do you make silk? If this is such an amazing fabric, it started an entire trade route, how is it made? So there are a large variety of insects that can produce silk. For, com- for commercial silk production, the most commonly used species is the larva of the Bombyx mori or the domestic silk moth. Sericulture is what people refer to as the process of gathering silkworms and harvesting the cocoons, and the process of breeding silkworms. Additionally, there's a Bombyx mandarina, which is a wild silkworm, that is used in a variety of ethical silk production that I'll talk about in a minute. All of these are of the order Lepidoptera, which is where you find moths and butterflies. Silkworm larvae produce large amounts of cocoon protein, or the silk, using dietary nitrogen. They get most of the nitrogen from mulberry leaves. They prefer white mulberry leaves, but will eat other types. They produce the silk from a pair of curved glands found on the ventral side of the digestive tube, and these glands account for 25% of the weight of the larva, indicating how important the silk production is to the insect. Female silkworms can lay a large number of eggs, hundreds at a time. The eggs are incubated in a controlled environment until they hatch into the larvae. The larvae feed on the mulberry leaves for about six weeks. 
When they are full, they will start spinning the cocoon. Now, the cocoon spinning is a dizzying process that involves rotating the larval body in a figure eight motion for approximately 300,000 times. It takes anywhere from three to eight days to complete a cocoon, and it is formed by a single strand of silk held together by a natural gum called sericin. When the cocoons are done, they're either placed in boiling water or chemicals are used to dissolve the sericin and the silk protein fiber is slowly reeled from the cocoon in individual long threads. It takes about 2,500 silkworms to produce one pound of raw silk. Now I know it's upsetting to think about silkworm larvae being boiled alive or chemically killed, uh, and because of that, there are silks that are harvested in a more humane way. One type is a himsa silk, which is usually used as wild silk moths, and it waits until the moths hatch from the cocoons to harvest them. So we've talked a lot about how silk is produced, but what is it really? There is an extremely helpful review article from the International Journal of Molecular Science published in 2016 by Marlene Anderson et al. And that outlines the process and properties of silk in silkworms and spiders. So silk is one of nature's strongest fibers with an equivalent strength of steel. For silkworms, the fibers are 10 to 16 micrometers wide and consist of two fibroid monofilaments that originate from two separate silk glands and are coated in the sericin. So before I get to go into fibroin and sericin, let's pause for a little biochemistry recap. Protein. So proteins are made in your cells when the DNA is transcribed into mRNA or messenger RNA, and that messenger RNA is translated into groups of amino acids. Those groups or chains of amino acids can then be folded in various ways, and those are proteins. And proteins are the doers of your body, right? Proteins are involved in pretty much every function there is, but they're nothing more than specifically folded chains of amino acids. And that folding is really important. So the shape of a protein, how it's folded, indicates its role and also its chemical and physical properties. Okay, unpause. Now we've had our little biochemistry primer, back to the fibroin. It's an insoluble protein, which means won't dissolve in water, and it's considered a beta carotene, so it's in the same family as hair and skin and nails. It has three chains, a light chain, a heavy chain, and then a glycoprotein called P25. And a glycoprotein is nothing more than a protein with some carbohydrates sugars, glyco, sugar. The light chains and the heavy chains, only called that because of the relative weights, are linked by disulfide bonds. And these are sulfur-sulfur bonds that are quite strong. And the P25 links to both of them through non-covalent interactions. And those are interactions that don't involve sharing of electrons. So nobody's really sherry-sherry here, but they all are tightly held together. Now, I mentioned that the building blocks of proteins are amino acids. And the amino acids in fibrin are a bit unique. They have a high glycine content. It's one of the amino acids. And this allows the sheets of the heavy chain of fibroin to be tightly packed. And that's important because it's this tight packing that leads to the high tensile strength and rigid structure of the silk. So remember I said how proteins are folded, their shape will give you its properties. Now there's another protein involved and that's sericin. And it's a polymer. We remember that one, right? Polymer is just made up of monomers. And it's a globular protein, which means that its shape is of a sphere or glob after folding. It consists of 18 amino acids. It's very hydrophobic, which means it doesn't like water except when the water is hot. Like me, I only like really hot showers. Saracen only likes really hot water. In lower temperatures, it resembles a gel, and that's what allows it to stick and allows the silk to stick in the cocoon. It makes up 25 to 30% of the weight of the cocoon. Now, proteins can also have side chains, little add-ons like 
jewelry. And these side chains can either be more amino acids or other chemical groups that give the protein different properties. Saracen does have some water-loving or hydrophilic side groups such as serine. These have a good ability to absorb water which has been noticed by the cosmetics industry. So now remember, saracen is a byproduct of silk production. Silk fabric is only made with the fibroid. All of the saracen, or most of the saracen, is stripped away during the silk production process. However, since it's hydrophilic, it could potentially be used in creams and shampoos and could lead to an increase in hydration, elasticity, and anti-aging and anti-wrinkle effects. And this would be a good idea since around 1800 millijoules per kilogram of fiber is the energy required to produce silk more than any other textile. Over half of this process is the degumming, the getting rid of the saracen. 50,000 tons of saracen are dumped into groundwater along with the chemicals required for the process for every 400,000 tons of silk produced. It's a lot of energy and a lot of waste. So if you're going to be using that much energy, it'd be great to be able to use the waste. One group out of the university in Columbia found that autoclaving the silk cocoons led to not only to less chemical waste, but to better quality silk byproducts that could then be upcycled into other uses, such as cosmetics. So there's the components of silk, but are there other uses for this beautiful and highly functional thread besides making gorgeous clothes? Because of silk's amazing strength and relatively inert status, it doesn't react with much. Silk sutures have been used in medicine for quite some time for stitching back incisions. There's also a product that's silk powder that is used for topical wound care and dermatological conditions. A really helpful review article published in Advanced Healthcare Materials in 2018, authored by Chris Holland et al., outlines the biomedical uses for silk, both current and potential. One of the interesting things that I came across in the article is this concept of biocompatibility. And this is the ability of a material to perform with an appropriate host response in a specific application. Essentially, does the material do what it's supposed to do and not irritate or exacerbate something in the host? And one good example of this was the Seri surgical scaffold that is used in breast reconstruction. 69 patients who had had the breast reconstruction showed only mild inflammatory responses, 59 out of the 69, excuse me. So 69 people had it, 59 showed only mild inflammatory responses, and only one patient had to have the mesh removed. So it's pretty biocompatible. It's not causing a lot of issues in the host. Another example would be the consideration of silk nanoparticles for the delivery of cancer chemotherapeutics. And this would require hemocompatibility assessments. Will the silk interfere with something in the blood? And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So as we're moving through these potential uses for silk in the biomedical field, maybe think a little bit about biocompatibility. What would you want to test for? What would you want to know that the silk would do or not do? So what are some new and exciting ways silk is being researched? So one is silk solutions. And this has been investigated as a treatment for corneal injury and dry eyes. In mice, the silk treatment inhibited detachment of corneal epithelial cells and increased conjunctival goblet cells. And this is essentially recovering and repairing the tear film and the mucus layer of the eye and improved corneal health and reduced dry eye symptoms. And importantly, it did this without some of the side effects of current treatments such as pain and irritation. Silk films are being investigated for drug delivery, wound healing, and many other indications. One potential use that was really interesting to me, personally, as an immunologist, was using silk to make microneedle patches for vaccine delivery. These are minimally invasive and painless ways to deliver vaccines. So essentially, there is a patch, and there's these little needles on the patch, and you stick it to your skin, and you can't 
feel, it, it doesn't hurt, but the microneedles penetrate a small distance into the skin and deliver some of the vaccine that way. And silk would make a good substrate to build a patch out of since it can potentially keep the vaccine at a stable temperature, which would eliminate the need for cold chains in vaccine delivery, which is very important in other countries. And it can ensure the controlled release of the vaccine. So for the particular patch they were looking at, they use the silk for the tips and they use a polymer for the base. And both of those contain the vaccine. When applied, the polymer would dissolve quickly and that would release a chunk of vaccine, bolus, let's say a chunk, it's not solid, a bolus of vaccine into the body. And then the microneedle tips would remain inserted into the skin and that would release the vaccine slowly over a few days. And one study that used this technology found a tenfold increase in antigen-specific T-cell and humoral immune responses when compared to traditional immunization approaches, which is essentially just stabbing you with a needle. And the summary version of that is that the microneedle patch led to an increased immune response to the vaccine over traditional immunization, which is really cool and I think would be a very user-friendly way to deliver a vaccine, especially for kids or people like some people I know who are very needle-phobic. So, Silk nanoparticles is the next one. And you know we had to put this one in. If you've listened to season one of the podcast, you know how much we like a good nanoparticle. And as a reminder, nanoparticles are simply small particles that range in size between 1 and 100 nanometers. Using nanoparticles for chemotherapy drug delivery could allow for less side effects and or increased penetration of the drug, especially into solid tumors. Silk nanoparticles were researched for their safety, and so they showed low coagulation in plasma, so they're not going to chunk up, and low inflammation in a simulated venous blood flow model. And one study, in vitro study, showed improved anti-cancer drug delivery into drug-resistant breast cancer cells. While all of these in indications are very exciting, none are ready for prime time yet, though there is something exciting about the potential of using this natural fiber in medicine in new ways, so we'll definitely be keeping our eyes on this one and hopefully we'll update you if anything new comes to market. Glossary. We've got a big glossary this week, folks. Fibroin is an insoluble protein that is the core of a silk thread. Saracen is a globular protein that is a gum holding the silk thread together. A glycoprotein is a carbohydrate plus a protein. An amino acid is an organic compound that contains amino and carboxylic acid groups, and they are the molecules that build proteins. Biocompatibility is the ability to perform a function and not irritate the host. And a nanoparticle is a particle of 1 to 100 nanometers in size. And I do want to remind you of our biochemistry break from earlier about how proteins are made. So in a cell, DNA is read into mRNA, that's messenger RNA, and it's called messenger RNA because it takes the message and it gets translated into chains of amino acid that are folded into the proteins. It's your biochemistry break for today. Now for our cocktail party facts. Approximately 90,000 metric tons of silk were produced in 2022. Silkworm larvae spin their cocoon by spinning around themselves about 300,000 times. And silk has many biomedical uses currently, such as sutures and mesh. Thank you for listening to this episode of Luxi. I hope it's given you a renewed appreciation for the artistry and the power of silk. Personally, I'll be trying to buy ethically made silk going forward, and I'm excited to see what this amazing material can bring to biomedical science. 
Luxi is produced by me, Dr. Lux, and the audio engineering is by Dr. Demos. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie. Follow us all over social media at LuxiPod. Check out our blogs about sophisticated science over at Erevna Media and drop us a line to say hi. We love hearing from you. And remember, sharing is caring. So if you like the podcast, please share. And now for a little snippet of a podcast that we're really enjoying and we hope you enjoy it too. Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. They make the sound by vigorously rubbing their penis on their abdomen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my so, gosh. Then at night, they come out and crawl around your face and mate with each other. Oh, oh. But Sorry, get this. I would like to sleep tonight. As naturalists, Let's face it, we find something dead, we go and we poke it with a stick. I did that with the That's deer what, like three weeks ago. As you do. Rachel, Rachel, no, 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 you weren't paying attention. Blood and mucus. Oh, right, sorry. <laughs> oh, All right, no. this episode is going off the rails. This is the quality oh, content people come here for. <laughs> Strange by Nature podcast was chosen as one of the best science podcasts of 2021. Come join the fun wherever you find your podcasts.